Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, this is Pia Baranchini and welcome to Everything is the Best, the podcast where I get vulnerable and make others do it with me. The goal here is to deep dive into interesting people's journeys, finding common denominators, and hopefully making you feel not so alone. So let's laugh, let's cry, and let's get inspired to live our best lives. Hello, my darlings. Welcome back. This week's episode is with Zed Gale, the co-founder of Peace for Kids, a nonprofit volunteer-supported organization based on trust, equity, and stability for children in foster care. I found out about the program from Instagram after asking my audience how I could get involved in the foster care community. I was sent their profile by the hundreds and quickly realized this was a uniquely special place. Peace for Kids listens rather than teaches. They use volunteers so the kids have an adult who has chosen them rather one that gets paid to be there. They work on building trusting relationships within their community of peers and adults who have experienced similar traumas so they can reduce the likelihood of being re-traumatized, especially by adults who are not equipped to deal with the extreme behaviors and actions of a child that does not trust. The youth learn to take ownership of their history, which empowers them to determine its impact on their lives. Incredible programs, wildly successful individuals, and even legislation has come out of this program. Please go follow Peace for Kids on Instagram. That's peace, the number four kids, and consider donating. And please share this podcast. There is a lot of valuable information in here about empathy, systemic racism, and the important role listening plays in changing lives. Yes, I had to get outside because my kids are uh, my kids are very vibrant today. They got a lot of energy going on right now. So if I'm going to get any semblance of quiet, I, I, I had to come outside. We'll, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I, I don't have kids, but I have um, a lot of animals here. So I go through the same thing. I have like, there's four dogs downstairs. Right? Four. That's, that's huge. I know. I keep adopting dogs and saving dogs. I need to, <laughs> I'm like, we, I can't we, collect these things. It's not good. <laughs> we have uh, someone in our community who is, uh, has been known to rescue animals. So uh, Diane, who's uh, like our development person, program development person, um, we're always finding strays. And Mm -hmm. so she's got like, she had like six animals that she had rescued. (laughs) And she's like finally found adoptive home for a couple of them. So she's down to two. And she's like, I 
I got to stop, you know. It's exhausting. It is. Well, thank you so much. I ended up having like an hour and a half long conversation with Jacob the other day, which was amazing. Um, and I can't, I, I, I'm so embarrassed, but I can't remember the name of the movie, but I watched that, um, so cheesy, but I watched that Mark Wahlberg movie about foster parents and adoption. Yeah, what was that? I know we went to go see that. You guys, Jacob told me that you went to see it. Yeah, I can't remember, but it was, you know, it was based on a true story. And so I had, I was having an emotional Saturday where I was laying on the couch and just wanted to watch something. And I watched this movie and when it ended and it showed the real family, I, I, I mean, I lost it emotionally and um, especially like not having kids of my own and trying. Um, it just really shifted a lot for me. And and I, I post on Instagram, like, you know, I have room in my home and I have some room I can make in my life more. So I have a lot of love to give. So what is the best response in helping, um, you know, youth that has to be in the foster care system. And a lot of people responded with peace for kids would be a great place to start with just some sort of volunteer work. So that's what led me to you. And I'm so impressed with everything you guys do. So do you want to just give our listeners just a little bit of a background on like what you do? I mean, you've been doing this for about 12 years. A little bit longer. Uh, I've been doing it for 22 years. Oh, really? Oh, but Peace for Kids is 12 years. No, Peace for Kids actually started in 1998. Really? Yeah. So, and we became a full-fledged nonprofit in 2001. So if you want to talk about doing it officially, we've been doing it for 19 years. Um, But yeah, we started as an organization in which I really had no clue what the hell I was doing. I'm just going to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, It was something that we created in response to a project that was happening at my dad's church called a season for nonviolence. And so uh, my dad and my godfather started this, this kind of movement with Arun Gandhi, who is Gandhi's grandson. And I think they might've been working with the King Institute. And the idea was that they wanted to celebrate the principles of nonviolence. And there are 64 days between the memorials of Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. So the idea was in between these 64 days, we had to do a project to celebrate the principles of nonviolence. And so I ended up working with a group of teenagers at the church and we decided that we were going to create a peace garden. And we had one of the members of the church who had recently lost their cousin to gang violence in Watts. And so we decided we want to do a peace garden out there And we went out there to create this garden. And in the process of creating it at this school, which was 99th Street Elementary School in South Los Angeles, and a lot of the kids that were coming because we were doing it on Saturday were kids that were in foster care. And and because my mom had a foster care experience and I had been raised at different points with her brothers and sisters because she was the oldest of eight. And so my mom kind of took all my aunts and uncles in when I was a kid. And it wasn't easy because they all had some challenges and it was kind of difficult for me because, you know, mom was trying to prioritize uh, me as her son and her brothers and sisters at the same time. But I had an uncle who was three years older than me and 
um, we were very close. He was like my big brother. Mm -hmm. But as we got older, it became uh, something that started to, to like tear our relationship apart because he started to see that I, for whatever reason, had different opportunities and that he didn't have. And so he started engaging in a life on the street that I just wasn't down with. And it just made me wonder, like, what's the difference between my, my uncle and, and me? Like, we've had the same opportunities, but something about not being able to be in the same space with his mom all the time and, you know, his mm. mom having these mental health issues that she's dealing with has created this kind of traumatic experience for him that he, he just seems to keep influencing his life. And so in working with the young people at, at Peace for Kids, I realized that what I was there to do was just listen and learn, not to come with a solution because I didn't have an answer. So when you asked me to talk about what we do, uh, what we do is really listen to young people who've had a lived experience in care. I often say it's not about what we do, it's about how we do it. Uh, we work with kids from age four all the way up to age 25 and beyond. And we do activity-based programs, but those programs are... Uh, really unique in, in that they are dependent upon what the kids have interest in, mm -hmm. right? So we might be doing poetry and music one week or one year, because that's what the kids are into. And then the next year, we might be doing arts and sciences, you know? Um, it just really depends on where the interest of our community lies. And in that, like, we are discovering things together. And it's that discovery that makes the Peace for Kids community is so unique because we've realized that, you know, peace begins when you have the ability to be seen and heard and valued. Mm -hmm. And that's what real peace is. And that's what the act of nonviolence is all about. It's about uh, addressing whatever biases you have against any other population of people. And for us, I had to address my own bias against kids in foster care, even though I had grown up with them, right? Mm -hmm. I had to understand like what makes them different, what makes them tick. And how do I give them a space where they are the kind of dominant culture in a community because that's not something they ever experience. You know, they tend to feel as though they are isolated and alone because it's not a place of honor. They never want anybody to know that they're in foster care, that they're not living in a, in a, in a home with biological parents. So that's also, I think, what people should, um, which I learned and I don't think a lot of people know, is that the goal of foster care is to ultimately try to get the kids back with their family. So it's not like they're in an orphanage or in a getting, of, they're not available for adoption, which creates a whole other, I can't imagine that it's like a whole other set of needs because there's probably essentially this like hope that they're always going to end up going home. Right. And then Jacob told me that ultimately over the course of their time in foster care, they can end up in, in what, like five to seven different foster care homes. Yeah. The, the, and it, here's the, the difficult news. Kids of color tend to linger in foster care systems longer. Mm -hmm. So the goal is of course, to reunite families and keep them together. Um, I think the goal should be never to separate families. It's ludicrous to me, right. That, you know, what you do is you, because 60% of the kids that get removed from foster care are removed because of general neglect. And most people think like, oh, it must be because of sexual or physical abuse. That's not the case. Uh, and general neglect essentially is subjective. It's not supposed to be, but it's subjective in the sense that a social worker has to determine whether or not they believe primary caregiver has the ability to meet all the child's needs 
or is that child at risk of starvation, of not having proper health outcomes? Um, and so those tend to be conditions of poverty. And so we take kids out of those conditions and give them to another family, but we pay that other family to take care of those kids, um, which to me is such a kind of ludicrous thing that we as a society have said, yeah, we're going to opt out of taking kids out of this environment and pay other people to care for them instead of helping these families and the these family. communities care for their well, kids. Well, that addresses racism. <laughs> and that, right. and, then right. they're, and they don't want to admit that they're not going to, you know what I mean? That's, that's our system you, you, was set up to keep the, to keep people of color, black people and white people separate. So yeah, let's pay these people and put them in a different home. And then it makes black families and families of color ultimately look like they're not capable, but you've taken away all their ability to grow within this community by, you know, redlining and all this systemic racism that happens in this country. That's um, what's up, Pia. Preach, sister, <laughs> preach. <laughs> One size fits all may work for your accessories, but when it comes to your hair, we all need something a little different to help us look our best. What if your hair care was as unique as you are? Function of Beauty is hair care that is formulated specifically for you. No matter your hair type, they create shampoo, conditioner, and treatments to fit your unique needs. How unique, you ask? Well, Function of Beauty has over 54 trillion possible ingredient combinations to make sure your formula is as unique as you. Here's how it works. First, take a quick but thorough quiz and tell them a little about your hair. Next, Function of Beauty's team determine the right blend of ingredients, then bottle your custom formula to order. Then they deliver your personalized formula right to your door in a cute customized bottle with your favorite color and fragrance. They even print your name on it. Plus, their formulas are vegan and cruelty-free. They never use sulfates, parabens, or any other harmful ingredients. Function of Beauty is not just the first ever custom hair care brand. It's the internet's top rated customized hair care brand with over 40,000 real five-star reviews and counting. So what are you waiting for? Go to functionofbeauty.com slash best to take your four-part hair profile quiz and save 20% on your first order. Go to functionofbeauty.com slash best for 20% off and let them know you heard about it from our show. That's functionofbeauty.com slash B-E-S-T. Hi guys, my name is Sarah Nicole and I am the host of the Papaya Podcast, where each week we dish out some sweetness mixed in with some seeds of wisdom all through candid conversations in a very real and tangible way. I want everyone to know that they're not alone and that we share in these experiences called life. And sometimes when we get to know somebody else's story, it changes ours a little bit as well. So I want you to tune in with us on Mondays, subscribe, rate and review it and keep these conversations going with us. You can tune in behind the scenes at the Papaya Podcast and the birds with Fire on Instagram as well. Can't wait to see you next week. Well, I mean, it kills me because I, I mean, I know so many people who uh, have been in this system who were like, yeah, like I had this shitty foster family that was just like getting a check cut, you know, and, and people don't think about that either. Like those kids are a paycheck to someone. Yeah, yeah. And I, look, not every family, of course, and I don't want to make. Yeah, yeah. And, and I get that. But, but, but I appreciate your uh, kind of tie into uh, the systemic issues of racism, which are also the systemic issues of biases that we have mm -hmm. uh, against each other. And we know that in the South, you know, kind of the first system of foster care came when the South was in the midst of reconstruction. So after they ended and abolished slavery, 
you know, black folks in the South had to prove that they were working in legitimate jobs in order to keep their kids, right? Mm-hmm. Because the Southerners lost all of a sudden all their farmhands. Mm-hmm. And so what the black codes did said to white folks that you could essentially pull people aside and say, yo, you have to prove to me that you're actually working a legitimate job. If you're not, well, then I'm going to have to take your kids or you're going to have to come work for me. So it allowed the former slave owners in the South to still get cheap or free labor on their farms so that they can move crops. So that's not something that people often talk about, but that has extended itself into what we do today. Right. That's so crazy. Yeah, for sure. You, that's I'm not making it up. You can look at the black crazy. Codes. That is crazy. That's crazy. And I also just, I mean, in my being naive only found out in the last year that that's how, I mean, that the our police, <laughs> police were formed <laughs> to go grab runaway slaves and to protect white land. That's right. That's right. Wow. You know? I can't believe that comes from the foster care system. I mean, that is just unbelievable. Yes. It's the first examples. And you, you mentioned the slave patrols, right? That that's where our policing system came from. But all of those things have been developed to dismantle systems. I mean, dismantle families and dismantle uh, people mm-hmm. who are solely relying on each other, right? Because if you're, if you're not the, the in-group, right? And we're talking about the in-group, we're talking about the people who are the predominant uh, owners of society, mm-hmm. meaning that they get to, to project on all the laws and the rules and, and make the systems work then the only way that you can uh, protest is by unifying your voice. Because as it's written in terms of, you know, the way that we have written our constitution is the only way to engage in this kind of discourse is through conversations, through protests, through engagement. And so that's in the First Amendment. And so when we remove the opportunity to do that by separating people and not giving them the opportunity to be together, then they don't recognize that there's a problem because they're only dealing with their issue of survival, mm-hmm. right? So they can't address the larger systemic issues because they only have to worry about how do I feed myself? How do I take care of this particular situation that my child is in? They can't think about larger issues. So you, you don't allow the system to be held accountable for the issues that it's delivering to a community. So in terms of the actual process um, of fostering and then what you guys do in your programs. Can you give, because I'm sure a lot of people don't know, um, I know that you do provide housing for your kids who have like grown up and it's like a way for them to enter because, you know, I don't know how you go from being in a foster home to then all of a sudden out in the world when you don't have, it's, I can't imagine that moment. Right. So I'd love to know, like logistically, like when you say you work with kids who are four, like, are they in homes, in foster care? Like how often do they see their families and what time do they spend with you? Like logistically, how does the program operate? Great question. It varies, right? Because the experience of each youth is different. Ideally, what we'd like to see happen is a kid comes into our program at age four because they're in a foster placement. And our program predominantly operates on Saturday. We're in the age of COVID, so things are different now. Yeah. But what would happen was kids would come to our program at an early age. They would be with their age group. So we have the program built into different age categories Mm -hmm. so that 
kids who are in a developmental space with each other get to be together. So they grow together, they learn together. Most of our community members are volunteers and that's done strategically because one thing I, I encourage people to remember is that if you're a young person in foster care, then almost every person in your life is paid to be there, mm. right? Your caregivers, your social worker, your attorney, even your educators, not officially because you're in foster care, but they're paid to be in your life. So having those kind of natural relationships is not People something that you to be, you want to be with someone who chooses to be with you. That's what's up, right? That's Aww. like a, that's like a human thing, right? Every family comes from a chosen family, but for our young people, right? They're forced into whatever uh, family situation they're placed in. And so they don't get the opportunity to make the choice of that relationship. And so we make sure that most of the people who are in our organization are volunteers so that the youth get the opportunity to choose who they feel connected to. Mm -hmm. So volunteers will be with a group of young people. And then as the youth get older, the volunteers will stay with those young people. So there's, uh, in, in essence, this like pod. Nice. This mini community within a community where young people know each other and the volunteers know the young people. So as they age through our program, it's the volunteers who know and can advocate for the needs of the youth mm -hmm. or the youth who can advocate for each other because they know, hey, Johnny really loves this. And I think this is an opportunity and he won't speak up because he's quiet mm -hmm. and he's shy, but I'm speaking up for him. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of sense of camaraderie that exists. And so the expectation is that as they get older, by the time that they reach age uh, 14, we then say, OK, you all have built this kind of community within a community. Now we want you to expand that outward and talk about a social justice issue that you want to address, whatever that is. And so the cohort before this one that we're in right now, they focus on food justice and food equity. And they really felt like, hey, what's happening in our community? We don't get healthy food. It's disrupting the way that our families operate because we're unhealthy. And so our lifespans are shorter. And so they decided that they were going to build this mobile kitchen and go around the community and talk about health. And the health mobile access. kitchen is so cool. Yeah. yeah so yeah, that idea came from within your kids. Yeah, it was a kid's idea. It wasn't ours. Not, so not cool. ours at all. Yeah. And so, and that's what I'm talking about, right? In terms of like the anthropology of what I came into this with, I had no clue. So the beauty of this is that my bias has been changed because I see how amazing our kids are when giving the space to do whatever they want to do. They come up with some creative shit and it's amazing. Mm -hmm. You know? Well, you, you did the ultimate thing, which is you listened. That's it. Which by the way, that's how Oprah's finale of her show and all of her years of learning and all of her interviews, I watched that episode often. She said, and every, my takeaway of every conversation I've ever had is people just want to feel heard and like their thoughts are important. It is the common denominator amongst human beings. It is why we're, people are defensive assholes. It's why people feel t like they can't say anything because some person at this point didn't. It's, it's so for you to ultimately make that, I mean, it's brilliant. And then you're getting, now they have, now they feel like they are important. And now they know when they grow up, they can have jobs. They can, they can have careers. They can start whatever they want. Cause they now know, Hey, I did this already, which that, how would they have ever gotten that experience before? That's what's up. Yeah. I mean, you summed it up. I don't think I need Incredible. to explain anything else. The mobile kitchen is so cool. Like what a cool idea.
I also actually really, I'm going to like change the subject because I want to make sure we get it in. Um, Jacob was telling me that there was a graduate or whatever, someone who was in your program who um, changed the legal, changed the law that foster care doesn't end at 18 and ends at 21. That's what's up. Yeah. Can you tell that story? Because that's amazing. Yeah. So we had in, in this particular cohort, they were really into this idea of kind of advocacy and reforming the child welfare system. And we would have these meetings about, okay, what do you want to do? What does this look like? And they were all over the place, which, which often happens. And then in the midst of this, one of the kids in our program who had done everything that he was supposed to do, right? He had gone to high school. He was valedictorian of his small high school. He then graduated and went to college. So he was going to trade school to learn how to be a chef. The same time he was working at Universal Studios and he worked late at night. So when he got done with his job, he had made a deal with security that he could sleep there Mm. because the train stopped running back to Compton. So he would spend the night like on a couch at Universal Studios in one of the offices and then wake up in the morning and catch the train home so that he could get, you know, cleaned up and dressed and then go to school. So this young man, his foster parent came to us one day and brought all of his stuff and said, hey, you know, he, he can't live here anymore. And this was in the morning and he was on the way back no. from work. He hadn't found out yet that he'd been kicked out. He was on his way back from work. And so, you know, he calls me and says, hey, I, I heard my stuff is in your office. I, I can't go home. And I said, yeah, you know, just come here. Don't worry about it. We figured it out for you. Right. We got a place for you to go. Don't sweat it. So he came and that afternoon we had a meeting with our, with our advocacy group and they were like, that's fucked up. That doesn't make any sense. Like he did nothing wrong, but he's kicked out. I was like, yeah, it's just kind of how it is. You know, you turn 18 and because from a licensing standpoint, he's now an adult, he can't be in a home with other minors. It, it just can't happen. So he had to go and they were like ridiculous. So his younger brother who was 16, hmm his name is Akeen, he saw that he said, oh, no, 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 that's going to be me in two years. That's not cool. We got to do something about it. So they started something that was called Project Homebound. And the idea was that they wanted to talk to other young people who've been in foster care and find out what happened to them when they got emancipated at 18. And so they found out all the different places that people had spent the night. And then they went around the city with these cardboard signs that said, all I did was turn 18. And they took pictures with this cardboard sign and their black trash bag um, that essentially was supposed to represent, yo, we're treated like trash. We're thrown out and we haven't done anything wrong. All Mm -hmm. we did was turn 18. And this campaign went viral. Uh, It made its way all the way to the White House. What Akeem then decided that he was going to do was he decided that he was going to uh, ride his bike 1,800 miles over a period of like four months. And those 1,800 miles was supposed to represent every youth in foster care that was supposed to be homeless that year. The year Mm -hmm. was like 2010. And so he did. He rode his bike all over the the state of California. He documented that. And then it ended with them having an event to talk about this issue. And because it got so much uh, press and news media, local politicians decided that they were going to adopt a policy that President Bush had signed into law, which was in California, they were increasing the legal age of foster care from 18 to 21. So it was such a great example for our young folks like, yo, when you mobilize around an issue and you speak your truth and you do it with authenticity and with honesty and transparency, people will listen. 
And so here it was, a little 16-year-old kid, you know, from, from Compton, who was like, it's not going to happen to anybody else. I'm putting my foot down. It shouldn't happen to my brother. It shouldn't happen to me. And I don't expect it's going to happen ever again. You know, he transformed the child welfare system here in Los Angeles and California. Unbelievable. How wonderful. I love that you, like, the way that you speak about the the pods or these groups, like how they mobilize is so, I mean, I've never, I didn't realize that that, I mean, knew that that's how it was set up, but to think that you're creating these like little think tanks is really special. I mean, they should do this at school. I mean, they should be something that's like normal. <laughs> yeah. And we've, we've actually, we're now having our young people go into schools to train educators on this cool. stuff as well. Um, and this is a unique time because of COVID, right? There's all kind of new possibilities that exist. Mm-hmm. We used to be, you know, our youth used to be young all the time. Like, yo, schools are not right for us. That shit's fucked up. We go into schools. The way that you guys talk about it, you don't even know that there's all these microaggressions that, that are happening in the midst of school. But even a teacher saying to me like, hey, everybody take this field trip slip home to your parents. That's a microaggression to mm-hmm. a kid that doesn't have parents, right? It's a yeah. reminder that I'm different. And they talk about that happened to them all day long, that there's always these microaggressions. So yeah, at the end of the day, I don't care about school. I'm pissed off. I've had a horrible day because all you've done all day is remind me that I don't belong here. Yeah. So they've talked a lot about like, let's get educators to understand how their language affects kids who've experienced adversity, how the way that they set up their classroom affects kids who've experienced adversity. And how do we get teachers and educators to understand we have our own unique language and you have to understand and listen to us, like you said earlier, right? Because once we know that we're listened to, then we'll bring value into your schools. But right now we're detracting from your schools because we're pissed off because you're not paying attention, Mm -hmm. right? We just don't have the language to say it. So the language ends up being our behaviors, our disruptions, all the things that you then discipline us on and then put us in a different classroom and tell us that we're emotionally disturbed. That's our language but you still have not heard us. That was a, that I think that's why Jacob and I ended up speaking for so long, because when you don't have an advocate speaking for you, not only have you not had an advocate, you've had, uh, you know, everyone in power, you know, say shitty things to you your whole life, or you're this, or you're aggressive, or you don't listen, or you're not smart, or you do this, you, you become, you think that about yourself. I mean, school's awful. I mean, I hate to say school, like I hated school and I can't, and I noticed very quickly, I I live in Pasadena, you know, it's very like private school and public school and the public school is all black and brown kids. And the difference is incredible. It should never be allowed to have this much difference in the same time. It should never. I went to the public school I wanted to go and it was, I remember being like, this is completely unfair. And you see these kids who at young ages are, angry and there's no one speaking to them. Why are you mad? Why don't you feel like you have the language to communicate? Why did you feel like it was okay to hit him? What are, do you feel unheard? Is that why you're lashing out? It hit me at a young age that, that that wasn't allowed, you know, that it's like them, they're angry. So what an amazing opportunity with COVID to say, Hey, motherfuckers, (laughs) by the way, what you were doing wasn't working anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. That's it. So what happens now, actually, speaking of that, for the kids who are in foster care with school, I mean, are you guys, I mean, are there foster families 
all willing to now become home teachers? Like, how is that working in September? Are you guys facilitating any of that? Like, how does that work? Yeah, we're, look, we're all figuring it out. And so um, the issue is that each district is approaching this differently. Mm. Um, I know LAUSD just signed their contract with teachers this past weekend. And so teachers are fastly trying to prepare for what it will mean to get students back in the classroom through distance learning, uh, which means that they're going through administratively setting up devices and getting devices back out. And they're going to do the first two weeks of school. They're going to be like a slow start Mm -hmm. in which they're just trying to test things and see who is being served, who isn't, um, how are we getting young people familiarized with the equipment? The truth is going to be a mess. Um, (laughs) because, and the only reason why I know that is at the end of the year, it was a mess. So we were hearing from our caregivers, right? You know, most of the, the families that we serve, they live in, you know, communities in South LA in which the bandwidth and the internet is not great. Mm. And so if you can imagine that you're a caregiver that maybe has three or four kids in the house, and then all of a sudden these three or four kids are all on a device at the same time. That means nobody's device is working because you don't have the bandwidth to manage that many people on Zoom at the Mm -hmm. same time. Mm -hmm. And so we found ourselves really advocating because we would hear from the teachers because we work with them like, oh, your kids aren't showing up. They're not doing it. It's like, oh, wait, 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 wait a second. Wait a second. Let's take an empathic response to your response and consider what is happening in their household. Consider the conditions that are in that are, again, conditions that are systemic not related to their desire for an education. No. But you're not blaming them for not showing up because you feel like they don't care. That's not the reality. That's, the, that's an easy, shitty thing to say about someone. For sure. And it's your out, right? Because it, yeah. it, it, it means you have no responsibility. It means you don't have to do any of the work. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. For sure. So, you know, we're, we're, we're sure that what we're going to be doing in the fall is a lot of advocacy, <laughs> right? A lot of like, yo, you guys got to think about this differently and perhaps... To your point, it's about doing what we do at Peace for Kids. Like, let's get pods together, right? Let's have spaces that instead of being on technology, let's send some some stuff home to some of these caregivers who are not working or to some of our volunteers who can support. And they'll work with a group of students in a physical space and it could be outdoors and whatever, but they'll be learning that happens there based on what the standards are that you want children to reach. But we may also have to look at what are the standards that we want children to reach, right? Can we look at those from kind of a social emotional meter as opposed to just basic writing, arithmetic, at math? Mm-hmm. How do we get young children at this stage to think about their own adversity, their experience? Because again, every child at this moment is experiencing adversity, right? They've all lost their school community. Um, who knows that they've experienced some things in the house where a parent is sick. There could be any number of things that have happened right now for children that you don't know anything about. Mm-hmm. And that's reflected in the number of, of cases that are being reported to the Department of Children and Family Services. The number of cases is down like 60% because Mm -hmm. who are the people who make allegations of abuse and neglect? They're teachers. Teachers. Oh my gosh. And so, you know, kids aren't in classrooms. Teachers don't see things. So they're not reporting, right? So there could be any number of situations that kids are walking into when they're coming into a virtual classroom that educators are not aware of. 
So we're going to have to be thoughtful about how we engage community in the education process of our kids so that we can mitigate that adversity and ensure that kids are having the opportunity to learn. It's amazing you have such a good rapport with all the teachers. Yeah, I mean, part of that is because my mom was an educator, right? Mm-hmm. So she, she worked at, uh, she worked for LAUSD for 30 plus years. She just retired last year as a principal. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so she's just, she's always talking about, yes, damn it, I got out at the right time. Because this, <laughs> this would be horrible to her try to Her trying to figure, to figure out. this out. <laughs> God would have had her back on that one. He was for like, you sure. put in the work, you get it out here. <laughs> And so, uh, you know, school was such an important aspect for my mom growing up. Like that was her salvation mm-hmm. um, when she was in care, right? It was the one place where she went where she knew she could be saved and, and it was her ticket out. And so my mom is very passionate about it. So she's been a spokesperson for her, for us. And we, you know, I live in the house with my mom. So we have this intergenerational I household. I do too. <laughs> That's awesome. And it's challenging, but it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I know this morning I was like, you're actually my child. Like I'm picking up under you. You're my full blown baby child. <laughs> but I'm so happy that I think when I have kids, it'll be great. Cause I, I think, I think it's very important to live in a multi-generational household. If you can. I, I agree. I agree a thousand percent. Um, but my mom has so much wisdom about school systems and what makes teachers tick because she was a teacher before mm-hmm. she was an administrator. Right. And so the language that I use when I go into a classroom is not one that's of shame or blame, it's one of inclusion. And we have a very specific technique that we use that is all very evidence-based in this approach, that we are engaging our volunteers in understanding and also engaging our educators in, in knowing, right? And so we teach this as a foundational way in which educators can begin to address their implicit biases towards children who've experienced Mm -hmm. adversity, which is children in foster care and often children of color. And so we use this very specific tactic to ensure that they're using language and approaches that honors the child's experience and doesn't make that child feel as though there are any microaggressions that are happening that are intentional. Because, you know, we have these automatic responses that at our base, we never really know exist, right? Because they're subconscious. And the rule about your subconscious mind is you don't have any control over it. And those subconscious thoughts often happen as a result of the experiences that you've had mm-hmm. or media that you've consumed. And because youth in foster care, it's not a population that people really feel like they have exposure to, that they don't necessarily know anybody in foster care. So most of the images that they get are projections from media about those stories. Bad kids. Bad kids. You got it, right? We did, our, our, our kids also... Uh, developed this research survey. And we asked 2,500 people in LA County. Um, the kids did this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So cool. We were, we, you know, we had this thing, it's, it's family dinner that we used to do before COVID. And, and so every month we would get together. And so all the older kids would come and it's just a round table, right? When you have family dinner, you talk, mm-hmm. right? And I'm black. And so, you know, at the black dinner table, you're responsible to come and have something to say. So it's, you know, it's a lot of like, you know, it's like 30 kids and volunteers. We sit at this long table and we're just talking trash and inevitably something comes up. Mm-hmm. And at one dinner, well, one of the kids was talking about how they hated school. Right? School is this and it's that. And, and one of the other kids was like, well, yeah, I had the same experience, but why do you think that is? And the other kid said, oh, it's because they think we're criminals and think we're bad kids. Right. Mm-hmm. So 
that's their reaction. And sometimes it's just easier to be that for them so that you don't have to like prove yourself every single place that you go. We always had to prove ourselves. And then I said, well, how do you know that that's what, what teachers think about you? They're like, oh, we know. And all the kids were like, yeah, yeah, it's true. We know, we know. And I was like, well, then you should prove it. Like if that's the truth, I don't think everybody else knows it. You know it, but you need to unpack that for everybody. And so they came up with this idea of doing a survey. So in the survey, one of the questions they asked was like, okay, how many people in the public have interactions with youth in foster care? And of course, it was a scale of like zero to like uh, six or more. And there were a lot more people who maybe knew one, but it was not a lot. And as you went further down the scale, when you got to six plus, there was like nobody, right? Um, and then they asked the question, well, how are youth in foster care most likely to be portrayed in the media? Because if you don't know any youth in foster care, you have nothing to dispel your mm -hmm. ideas about who we are. Of course. And so they came up with like 12 prompts, right? Which were 12 identities in which they said, here are ways that we can be portrayed in the media. And five of those were like positive and five of them were negative. Uh, and there were two that were like neutral. And so when the public came back with their responses, what we found in terms of how youth in foster care, how they believed they were most likely to be portrayed in the media, the top four, which were, when I say top four, it wasn't even close. Like the positive ones, which were like hero, loving child or parent, mentor or guide, all those were at like 5% or less, Jesus. right? Yeah. The ones that were over 40% were these four, victim, survivor and these two were the neutral ones right because they can be seen as like yeah, oh, yeah. yeah you know if i'm a survivor it means that you you, you said that i've had some trauma that i've, I've so you're acknowledging that's yeah, that, yeah 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 if if obviously if i'm a victim then you're just like you've you've experienced some shit so that's not necessarily a positive thing but we'll call that as neutral and then the other two were uh drug addict and criminal so, you know, when we brought it back to the kids, they're like, yeah, we told you, that's what's up. Everybody thinks this about us. And this is why we have these experiences because nobody sees our possibilities. And what's interesting is that we have a leadership program in which we talk about the power of the hero and that most of the superheroes that we are familiar with are superheroes who've had a foster care experience. Oh, right? yeah. Batman. His parents were killed. He was raised by his butler, non-relative caregiver. Superman, his whole planet blew up. He was adopted by a family in Kansas. Spider-Man was in kinship care. His aunt and uncle raised him because, you know, his parents died. And then when you think about the X-Men, the X-Men is literally a group home for kids who were not wanted because they were different. Yeah, I didn't think about that with the X-Men. Wow. Yeah, so you have these kind of narratives that exist. In, and these and these aren't small media narratives. These are big yeah, kind of, of you know, these are big kind of themes that exist in the, the comic world. And so, and these are, uh, you know, these are things that make millions of dollars, right? So people can't even associate the idea that these heroes were foster kids. All of their stories are very much present in who they are, right? They informed Superman literally wants to save Earth because his planet got destroyed, right? Mm -hmm. That's literally why he exists. Batman literally wants to fight crime because they killed his parents. Yeah. So it's not like, oh, I didn't know. You knew, but you don't associate it with it because your bias doesn't allow you to see kids who've had that experience as having strength, as mm -hmm. not being broken, as not being on the other side of the equation instead of being a hero, being a criminal. I mean, God bless you. It's just so, I can't, I, it just breaks my heart. 
and it's right here, you know, like we live in Los Angeles and it always is that way in, in every community, but it takes a lot of courage and work to do what you are doing. I mean, I can't imagine the strength just one, cause you are, this is a business, you know, you have, so from an entrepreneurial standpoint, what an, what an incredible business that you're running over there. Truly. I mean, it has to be a business to, to function. So congratulations on that. Number one. And then number two, I can't imagine the heaviness of the things that you have to hear, but it must just mean nothing to the joy that you experience when you see these kids thrive in an environment that you've created. And that's such a remarkable point. It is about thriving. Mm -hmm. And we see that all the time. Our kids are fulfilling their potential because we believe they can. Mm -hmm. And we listen to them, to your point earlier, and we make them feel valued. And so much so that we're willing to shift our program if their values are different. I don't care. Oh, you guys like this? Oh, we'll do that. It it doesn't matter, right? Um, And so when we see these young people, Akeen, who I spoke to you about, he's now started uh, a whole new business and because uh, he went on to get his doctorate. And so he's now Dr. Akeen. He makes you call him doctor. Um, <laughs> but he started this whole website where it's like, yo, there's not really a space in the same way that for you at Peace for Kids, you gave me a space to feel valued and heard. There's no space for people like me who have had a foster care experience who now I'm an adult and I've gone through school and I've got all this education but I still don't have my community. I'm, mm. I'm going to make that community. So he started this community online called Altura Collaborative, which is just for folks who've been in foster care, who have earned their degrees, where they can come together and listen to each other and create movements, right? He's like, I'm doing the same thing now for, for, for my age because I miss it, right? And we have a young woman, Angelica, who did the same thing in creating the Shade Room, right? Where she said, what I appreciate about Peace for Kids is you gave me a place for me to have my voice. And as black people, we love to throw shade. So I'm going to start this space where we get to throw shade and talk about the stuff that we want to talk about without judgment. Where we can do it for fun and we can do it. And she's built an incredible business as a result of that. So when I, I mean, see the shade like, room is a big deal. It's, it's amazing. Realize, I mean, Jacob told me that Angelica's from, from, you know, Peace for Kids and was in foster care. I just think it's... Um, the shade room is a big deal. <laughs> I mean, she works with you guys a lot, right? Yeah, she um, she's on the board of Peace for Kids. But she also, I mean, she just also did a beautiful thing. Like all the kids who graduated college or high school this year, you know, last week, she got on. It's like, all right, what do you need? I'm going to meet every single one of your individual needs. I'm taking care of that. Because Zaid took care of me when I went to college and he got me through. So I'm paying it forward. You just tell me what you need. So she's buying them laptops. One kid Aww. wanted a a trainer because he wants to lose weight. So she's getting him a trainer. She's like, I just want to hear from you what you need. And then I'm going to get that for you. You got, I got you. Right. But yeah, so she's, you know, and that's, she's my little sister and I'm so proud of her, but all of these kids are my, my siblings, right? Yeah, they're, of course. They're like my little brothers in the same way that I would have wished that my uncle Donald could be there for me and support me. I feel like it's my pay it forward for him because I learned so much about the impact of these systems through this dude that I love, who is two years older than me, right? Mm-hmm. That for me, it's like, how do I, I give his life meaning? I'm going to give it meaning by making sure the kids like him don't have the same struggles that he did. How many kids are in the program? So annually, we serve about 215 kids. You know, this year is going to be different um, because there have been some barriers. And so I don't think we're going to get to serving 215. But our goal is never in the number of kids we serve. It's the depth of service. 
So if we serve 50 kids really well, meaning that we see them multiple times a week and they feel connected to their cohort and they're communicating what they need and we're delivering programs that's based on those, then then we've done just fine. Yeah. So for everyone listening who wants to help, I know I reached out to volunteer and I'm Jacob and I are trying to come up with a program that makes sense. And it's so funny because I was like, well, I could have, you know, we could have these people talk. And Jacob was like, that, that's cool. But like the kids want to do stuff. <laughs> like, like they, he was like, that's nice. You want to be like a savior, but like they don't care. Like they actually want to do something. And I was like, oh, okay, great. Okay. I'll pivot here. And I was like, maybe we can have you know, it's whatever. I'm like excited about trying to figure out something with that provides them like an activity. Yeah. Um, but for people who, you know, don't live in LA and obviously volunteering at this point is impossible because it has to be over a computer. How can someone, you know, contribute or help? Is there a website where they can donate? Obviously just getting, I think a lot of eyes on the Instagram is even good because it's a great, you guys have a great, your social media is so great too. Whoever runs that is doing such a good job. It's so like vibrant and engaging and seeing everyone. It's just, it's great. Oh, I appreciate that. Pia. Yeah. That's uh, Jacob and one of our uh, program alum, Miriam, who is also the program coordinator, right? She's someone who had a lived foster care experience and went through our leadership development program. Um, so they run all the social. So, so they're the ones that do it. But yes, you, you've already said it. Like the first thing is, of course, we are a nonprofit. Please donate. There are a couple of ways to do that. You can do it one time or you can become join what we call the hero circle. Because again, we're trying to brand this experience as, yo, we're all heroes and we're showing up for our kids in the way that they are, which is mm-hmm. their heroes to us. And so that's a monthly recurring donation that you can sign up for. You can do that at peaceforkids.org and it's peace, the number four kids.org. And then the other thing is, yes, follow us on socials, right? And as you follow us on socials, be interactive, like share content because a lot of the content is coming from the voices of the youth. Mm -hmm. So our young people really want to proliferate uh, media with actual images that are representative of them and authentic that, don't come from like this like savior identity of like what we did for these poor little children. Mm -hmm. Aren't we so awesome because we can take care of the poor foster kids. That's not the tone of what we do. We don't do any of that. Mm -mm. (laughs) You know, that shit is dead. We, we, we literally (laughs) have, you know, that's like the old volunteerism model where it's like, I come in and I drop down and I parachute in and I save all the lovely children and I parachute out and I feel better about myself. Yeah. We don't do that. Right. We're in it. And so we encourage you to share those type of messages if they resonate with you because we want other people to get that. And then lastly, do what you've done, right? Reach out to us and say, hey, I don't know where to start, but I'm down to listen Mm -hmm. and I'm down to engage. And whatever that looks like, if it means that, hey, I can jump in and I'm just gonna have like a round table with some young people and invite them so that I can listen to what they've got to say, come do that. Um, One of the things that our young people are working on right now is that they're starting something that they're calling the sanctuary. And the idea behind the sanctuary is that they can have different people from different fields come in and just provide a space for them to learn something new since we're not able to do that through Saturdays. So if you're an artist or a musician, you could come in and say, hey, no, I'm gonna play some music and we're gonna talk about it, why I do it. And kids who are musicians might then just drop in and have questions and engage with you in that way. And that's a way that volunteers can participate. You know, you can reach out and say, I don't know, but I'm willing to have a conversation. We're not going to have any programs in which we, you know, bring you in or you can work one-on-one, but that could be something that you can do. You know, you have a talent or a gift. 
let's make sure that the kids in our community who have those gifts can connect with you and there can still be some growth even in a time when we can't physically be together. Of course. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for taking this time to speak to me. Thank you, Pia, for the invitation. Of uh, course. You know, I apologize in advance for all the talking I do. I just get excited about all this stuff. I, I mean, I do too. Jacob and I were on the phone for an hour and a half. I don't know him. I never <laughs> met. And we were both like, oh my God, we have other meetings. Like I missed a meeting. Because <laughs> I was like, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so we're all covered from the same cloth with that. Don't worry about it. That's what's up. That's well, what's thank up. you. God bless you and everything that you do. I appreciate you, Pia. God bless you as well. And much love to you and your tribe over there. I hope you all are staying safe and healthy during this time. Thank you. You too. Have a good rest of your weekend. You do the same. Bye. And that, ladies and gentlemen, concludes this week's episode of Everything is the Best. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that stuff. Maybe leave a comment. But remember, shitty comments are for shitty people. Go ahead and follow me on Instagram at Pia Barangini. And I hope you have a fabulous, fabulous rest of your day. Love you. Ciao.